Good morning, everybody. How you guys doing? Man, I'm doing great despite what's happening in the world today. How many of you know how it is just incredibly hard to maintain a good attitude, to maintain peace and joy when you turn on the news or look out the window or just simply go out in the world? It seems like everything is conspiring to just grab your joy and your peace and just snatch it away. And it, doesn't it seem like that? And it's so easy to get caught up in this spiral of, of I see this, so I'm going to look at that a little bit more, and then there's this. We all follow these rabbit trails all over, and before you know it, you're, you're off on some tangent, and you've spent all day there. And what I notice is that it just sucks the joy right from my life. The peace that I had maybe an hour before, all of a sudden, is gone. And I'm just wondering what's going to put an end to this turmoil. It's, it's so hard. But I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're here and we can dig into the word, the one thing that is absolutely unchanging in the middle of a world that is absolutely in chaos. I want to say unprecedented, but that is, that is so not true. The things that we're going through now have been things that mankind has dealt with forever in its history. So nothing is unprecedented. Maybe our response to it is, though. We are more in tune with, with pain and suffering and strife and anger and rhetoric that's going on in the opposite end of the world than we ever have been before. It used to be just whoever's in your house or in your village or, or in your town. Those are the people that you would talk to, but now it's all over the world. And if somebody has a bigger platform for whatever it is that they're, that they're talking about, you get to be a part of that platform, for better or for worse. And it's so difficult. So let's get in. I'm going to get into Job. Now, for those of you who are new here, whether you're out there watching online or wherever you are, we are teaching our way through the book of Job. Now, we are in uh, chapter 12 this week, 12, 13, and 14. Actually, we're doing three chapters this week. If you've missed any of the previous ones, I think it's good to go back and listen, you can go back to either uh, Facebook or our YouTube channel or go through our website uh, and you can look at the archive and catch up on some of the previous ones because there's a lot to know about what's going on. But I'm going to kind of maybe just give broad brushstrokes as far as where we are as we get into this message here today. So first of all, Job, the book of Job, a lot of people just equate it with pain and suffering. Pain and suffering and maybe patience might be a virtue that we could learn from studying the book of Job, but nothing that seems terribly attractive or like, oh, I really want to learn about pain and suffering today, said nobody ever. But there's so much that we can learn from this. So where we are, Job is an upright man. He's upright. Our name of the series is called Blameless because God himself declares Job to be blameless, God says that about Job. Not sinless, but blameless. Job has his faults. He's done things. But Job has always repented of everything that he's done. He's offered the right sacrifice. In that time, it was the sacrificial system. So if you wanted to atone for a sin, you had to sacrifice something physically. And he did that. He did all the things that he was supposed to do. Uh, he lived a good life. He was a good businessman. In fact, he was rich. He was, he was very well off, owned property, owned, uh, had, had servants, had, had multiple children, had ten, had 10 sons, and he was doing really well. 
So this is what we know about him. But all of a sudden, with no warning in his mind, he is beset with tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. He loses all of his livestock, which is his livelihood. He loses all of his animals. Then, in very quick succession, he loses his children. His children are destroyed. Then he is stricken with sickness, boils, and all kinds of terrible things afflict his body. And so he goes from this well-off, comfortable businessman going through day after day and doing a pretty good job of that to all of a sudden he is laying on a trash heap outside of town just lamenting what's gone wrong in my life. Anybody relate to that kind of a thing? Hopefully not to that depth. But this is where we are. And then his friends. Job has made these acquaintances, these friends, through all of his life, his business dealings, and they hear from afar where they are. They hear our buddy Job is going through some stuff. Let's go, let's travel there, and let's talk to our friend Job. Let's help him out. Let's support him. So in this case, there's three guys specifically. There's Eliphaz, there's Bildad, and there's Zophar. Those three friends specifically, they decide, they agree amongst themselves, we're going to meet up and we're going to travel and we're going to go support our friend Job. They get there fully intended to, to soothe his suffering, to be there to support him and kind of nurse him back to, to vigor and just be there. The problem is this. Once they get there, they see that Job is suffering. They see all these things that have happened to Job. And in their mind, their theology is very simple. If you've done bad, God will punish you. If you've done good, God will reward you. So that's in their mind. That's really kind of the entire depth of their theology. And so they're struggling to look at Job. Job, as far as they know, he's sinless. He hasn't done anything. And Job knows that he's innocent. Job in his own mind knows, I haven't done anything to warrant this kind of attention. And yet it's happening. So their struggle and really the tension through this whole book of Job is this idea that how do you reconcile the fact that bad things are happening, in this case happening to Job, but a bigger picture, how do you reconcile the fact that pain and suffering and terrible things happen throughout the world and yet God is still good. How do you reconcile that? Or can you still even hang on to the belief that God is good when what your eyes are telling you doesn't line up with that? Worse yet, your closest friends, in this case, Job's friends, they come. And they have decided that the only way that all this stuff can be happening to Job is if there's some hidden, deep, dark sin that... He's kept hidden from everybody. He's doing a good job of hiding it, but it's got to be there. It has to be there. And so each one of his friends takes their own turn coming at Job and accusing him of being sinful, accusing him the reason this is happening is because you have sinned, and if you would just admit to it, repent of it, and walk away from it, everything would be fine. All three of his friends have decided this is... This is our mountain, and we're going to stand on that. And we are going to beat away at Job until he cracks. Anybody ever watch those those detective shows where they put the criminal in the room, and they just sit and keep haranguing him with, with things until they finally, okay, all right, and they admit to everything. This is kind of the, the theory, I think, that Job's friends 
are coming at this from? If we just keep restating the same thing over and over again, more and more forcefully, he's going to crack and he's going to admit to it. The problem, though, that all three of these men have, including Job, really, so all four of them, the thing they struggle with, the thing they have no context with is this idea of undeserved pain and suffering. In their mind, if you're suffering, you've done bad. But they, and they can't wrap their minds around it any more than they can wrap their minds around the idea of undeserved favor. Many of us today struggle with that idea of undeserved favor, thinking you have to do something to earn God's favor because nothing comes for free, right? That's what we've been told over and over. The idea that you could be a sinner and still receives God's blessings was far beyond their comprehension. So, This is where we are. We're going to look at Job's response. The last friend, we talked about it last week, was his friend Zophar. And Zophar had gotten finished with his attempt to get Job to crack, his his attempt to, to get him to spill his guts on what was going on. And now it's Job's turn. Job turns back. He knows that these accusations are unfounded, but his friends are so sure. His friends really have decided that it can't be anything else. And part of that was self-serving on their, on their part because if they couldn't prove that Job had sinned and that's why he was being punished, then they'd have to take a really close look at themselves. If Job, a blameless man who I know to be a good guy, an upright kind of guy, if he can go through this, what are my chances? This could easily turn on me. So they have to. They're desperate to try and find that, that thing. And they are unwavering in their belief that they're right. There has to be something there. And if we just keep digging, we are going to find it. They're unable to or maybe even just unwilling to hear any challenge to this paradigm that they have developed. And their paradigm, fancy word paradigm for those of you who are not super familiar with it, basically a paradigm is just the lens that you look at the world through. A paradigm, it's a scientific term really, but applied to our lives in general, your paradigm is just the filter that you see and hear everything through. It's a basic set of assumptions that we all make. The problem with assumptions is that they can be wrong. And if we're not willing to be open to change those or even just to challenge them, we get stuck. I found this quote. Check out this quote. It's attributed to different people, but it says, your assumptions are your windows on the world. Scrub them off every once in a while or the light won't come in. It resonated with me because when we do deliverance ministry, I often talk about your spiritual windshield. Everybody's got kind of a windshield to your spiritual car that you're driving, and it gets splattered with bugs and grit and junk throughout the year. It just constantly Junk is hitting it, and it clouds up your windshield. And before long, you can't see anything clearly. So you're just kind of traveling based on the assumption of what you remember was out in front of you. Not a very safe way to drive or a good way to live your life. And so we need to clean off that spiritual stronghold, which the way to do that is to uncover the lies that you're believing uncover the the junk that's on there that doesn't belong there and be willing to throw that out and challenge maybe some of those things that are there. 
That's what this is, this idea of cleaning off your spiritual window to the world or your windshield. You have to be open-minded. And open-mindedness is biblical. Tons of scripture that talks about wisdom. How we need to, we need to get wisdom. But let me share this one with you, which I, I love the way that this is put. This is from Acts. And I'm just going to read this one to you. This is Acts chapter 17. It's just verse 11. And it says, And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if what Paul and Silas was teaching was the truth. Some translations, when it says open-minded, the people of Berea were more open-minded. Some translations, yours probably lists in a number of different ways, but some say more noble character. Those of Berea were of more noble character. Some translations say fair-minded. But really, when you go back into the Greek, it's the idea of being open-minded and open to hearing, to hearing things, to hearing people speak, comparing what you hear to what the Word of God says, studying the Scriptures to see if it's true. You're gathering wisdom. Gather Gather information from all different sources, but take it back to the Word and compare it to what God has to say on the subject. And, the, and Scripture tells us that that equates to being more noble character. That's where I want to be, not just I know what I know and I'm not willing to look at anything else. That's when we get in trouble. So as I've said before, when we study the Word, there is a reason for every single word that's in Scripture. Every single word. There's not a word, not a, not a, uh, there's nothing in there that doesn't have a purpose. It's all there for a reason. There's a lesson to be learned. There's a truth to be applied to your life today. There's wisdom to be gained if we're willing to look at it and try and apply it to our life. So a book of Job, which can seem just about pain and suffering, there is something in here that we can learn from it and apply to our life. So as we study these chapters today, again, we're doing three chapters today, and it's all Job's response. And as we study, pray for an open mind. Pray that you would have an open mind to hear things, maybe see things differently or hear it in a way that you haven't heard it before. And then let that be applied to your life. And if you do that with an open mind, the Holy Spirit then can have his way. And that's where we gain wisdom. That's where we begin or continue this process of perfecting the righteousness of Christ in us. So that's what we're, that's what we're after today. And we've seen that despite the fact that his friends are so rock solid certain in what they believe is wrong with Job, they're wrong. They've made their diagnosis of his condition. They've prescribed their remedy, which is simply repent. If you repent, everything will be okay. The problem is he doesn't have anything in his mind to repent of, and he can't reconcile that. So we keep hearing, you know, throughout the weeks, I, I keep saying that these guys are not entirely wrong in the things that they say to Job. It's, it's not all, it's, it's certainly not heresy. They're not blaspheming God. And a lot, of it is, a lot of it is wisdom and a lot of it is truth, but it's, it's not having an effect on Job. Why is that? Why doesn't all this, their, their big giant flowery speeches, why are they not fixing Job's condition? 
And the reason is just very simply that their version of wisdom lacked application to Job's life. It lacked the power to convict Job and to to literally change his attitude because it wasn't accurate for his life. All they were doing is just robotically parroting the law, parroting back things that they had heard, popular sayings, common sayings. They were just repeating them back to Job, basically hoping something was going to stick and something was going to have an effect on him. And sometimes I think we do that. I know I do that. I fall back on quoting the law or quoting maybe some particular scripture that's a favorite of mine when I'm at a loss for anything else to say. But the problem is, it usually only happens when I've failed to fully understand the context. When we take time to understand context, that wisdom can be applied differently. An example of this would be a judge. You have a judge, say a Supreme Court judge or any other judge. If all they did was open the book of the law and look at what you did or what the charges were against you and say guilty or not guilty based on the exact letter of the law, we would not generally think that was a very good judge, would we? Because normally we want context. Okay, thou shalt not kill. There are all kinds of laws against killing somebody. But if you killed someone who was coming into your home to hurt you or hurt your family and you hurt them in the defense of that, wouldn't you want the judge to take that into account? You certainly would. So we would think a judge who failed to do that and just said, hey, the law says you did this, therefore that, we wouldn't consider that a very wise judge. Look at the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court. Inside the, the building, where they, the chambers where they deliberate are, they call them a frieze, but it's a sculpture that kind of goes all the way around the wall, kind of a relief carving, and it's all kinds of different what we call givers of wisdom or givers of the law. It contains Moses and Solomon and Hammurabi and all kinds of these different greats, multiple sources with which to gain wisdom. And so they take that and they apply that in order to then make a judgment. But today, I think many of us, myself included again, are causing our brothers and sisters to stumble in their pursuit of God, calling them to be distracted or, or maybe even worse, misled by the fact that we are simply parroting something that we heard, something that we read, that maybe resonated with us because like, yeah, that's what I believe too. And so just like Job's friends, rather than to seek the Holy Spirit for fresh wisdom, and that's what I'm going to put out there, they just simply fell back on what they had all decided they were going to say. And it's easy to do when you're in this vacuum, when you're kind of in this echo chamber of you surround yourself with friends and people and sources that say exactly what you want them to say. We don't seek those multiple sources of wisdom. and It can be dangerous. Worse yet, we devote sometimes a disproportionate amount of time and energy and passion engaging in those things of the world, those storms that are going on every day, rather than to rise above it. And I think we tend to drag others down in that. Let me ask you a question. This it's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but I want you to think about it. Just given, let's just go back six months. In the last six months, have you spent more energy on politics 
or on your relationship with Jesus? Have you spent more energy on politics or sharing the love of Christ with someone else? Where has your focus been? No need to answer that. Just be honest. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. Here's what I know, though. When we introduced the book of Job, I, I gave my hypothesis, my, my theory, that Job was being tested in order to bring him to a higher place. God was allowing this to happen. God was literally allowing Satan to go in and test and afflict Job so that Job would be more reliant on God and he would then elevate himself to a, to a, to a higher place of, of love and reliance and faith in God so that then God could use him for greater things in his life. And I think that's where this is. But Job's friends, his, their accusations, their haranguing of him are doing more to fall in line with Satan's purposes than what God was trying to do. I don't want that to ever be where I am. So rather than to strengthen Job, they're making it more difficult for him to reconcile God's heart with what he sees in front. So let's look at this. Let's look at chapters 12 through 14. Again, typically I do just a chapter a week. We're going to do all three because all three of these are Job's response. Job has had it being a punching bag. He's tired of just listening to them all just, just pile on. And he, and he sits up straight and speaks truth back at them. Now, he speaks like a man who is absolutely certain that what he is saying is true. He doesn't necessarily understand it. He can't reconcile with what he knows to be true, with what he sees in front of his face, but he knows it. He knows it, and he's got that, that conviction when he fires back at his friends. So, let's get into it. Job chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Then Job responded, truly then you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. All right, so I just read this scripture. Let me, let me use a little different inflection, a little, little acting when I say that, because you got to catch the sarcasm here. Then Job responded, truly then you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. What he's saying is, you, you guys contain all the sum of the wisdom in the whole world, and when you're gone, then, then wisdom will be no more because truly you guys, you have it. You are it. You are the source of all truth and wisdom, and it's all just pure sarcasm that he's throwing back at them. Chapter 12, verse 3, But I have intelligence as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. And who does not know such things as these? Here's my Hebrew lesson for today. The Hebrew translation of that phrase is, duh. It may not be Hebrew, but that's the gist of that. He's going, I know that. The things that you're telling me, the things you're beating me up with, I know that. We all know that. Tell me something helpful. Chapter 12, verse 4. I'm a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and he answered him. The just and blameless man is a joke. He's saying, he's the, the, the idea behind that is, I've spoken to God. He called me blameless. Have you spoken to him? What did he call you? Have you even bothered to check in with God? Can you say the same? Chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, I'll read this one for you. But just ask the animals, and they'll teach you, and the birds of the sky, and have them tell you, or speak to the earth, and have it teach you. 
And have the fish of the sea tell you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Everybody, including the animals and the earth, everybody knows that God is doing this. God is all-powerful, and this is all because of him. So no one's questioning that fact. But it makes it more even amazing in Job's mind than that God would even bother with him. And again, he can't reconcile why this is happening. But we see a turn. He's been, he's been beat up, but we see kind of a resurgence in his faith now where he's, he's like, I know that God is awesome, and I know that I'm blameless before him, and I know that I can trust in him. So he stands up, and he just gives this great speech, this epic speech, just extolling the power and the virtues of God. So again, we're in chapter 12. Verse 10, in his hand is the life and breath of every living thing. Verse 13, all power and wisdom are his. Verse 14, what he tears down can't be rebuilt. Verse 15, we have that one on screen. Behold, he restrains the water and they dry up and he sends them out and they inundate the earth, meaning drought and flood are both his to control. God is awesome and God is all powerful and he's merciful and Job knows this and he's just reinforcing that thought. Verse 16, strength and sound wisdom are with him. Catch this part, the second line there. One who goes astray and one who leads astray belong to him. Job, in the middle of his pain and suffering, in the middle of this epic trial that he's going through, takes a moment to step back and take a breath and pastor his friends. And he says, look, both those who go astray and those who lead others astray belong to him. He's telling them very gently, watch your words because I know they're not right and God will have his way with you. And he knows this. Chapter 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 22. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings deep darkness into light. Verse 23. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. Verse 24. See if this applies to today. He deprives the leaders of the earth's people of intelligence and makes them wander in a pathless wasteland. They grope in darkness with no light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken person. Does that seem like when you turn on the news today? You focus on just about any leader? Chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now we're in, we're in the second chapter here. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. Meaning, I want to plead my case before God because I know I'm innocent. He's willing to stand before the creator of heavens and earth, the one who does all these things. He's willing to stand toe-to-toe with God and proclaim his innocence because he knows. No one else knows, but he knows. Chapter 12, verse 4. But you smear me with lies. He's talking to his friends again. You are all worthless physicians. In other words, their diagnosis of his condition and their prescription to fix it, totally worthless. Chapter 13, verse 5. Oh, that you would be completely silent and that you would become and that it would become your wisdom. He's telling them, shut up and you'll seem smarter. That echoes Proverbs 10:19. Proverbs 10.19 says this, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips 
is wise. In other words, you'd be smarter if you didn't talk so much. I know I can fall into that too. Not from stage, but in my life. Chapter 13, verse 12. Your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay, meaning fragile, useless. They can, they can blow away with the wind like ashes. Your memorable sayings. How many, in today's land, that would be your, your fun memes that you post or your tweets, although they might be catchy and memorable. Is there really weight behind them? Is there really wisdom behind them? Verse 15, though he slay me, this is an important one, listen to this, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation, for a godless person cannot come before his presence. Again, God is willing to bet, uh, Job is willing to bet his life on his innocence, on what he knows. Now, some, some scholars look at that, though he slay me, thinking that Job is saying that he's going to die or that God will kill him. He knows he's going to die eventually, but he's thinking that God might well kill him, but he's okay with that. But what he's really saying is, it doesn't matter. If he kills me, if he finds me guilty and kills me because of this, so be it. His hope still belongs with the Lord. So he knows. He knows. Now, we get into this part where he's going to plead his case. This is chapter 13, verse 20, through the end of chapter 14. So 14, 22. Job is just, it's like this courtroom scene, and Job is pleading his case before God. So all the rest of this chapter here, he's directing his comments to God. And he says this, Only two things I ask that you do not do to me. Then I will not hide from your face. Remove your hand from me, and may the dread of you not terrify me. Then call, and I will answer. Or let me speak, then reply to me. He's just saying, Lord, if you could, if you could back off just a little bit on the pressure, and let's talk. Give me the charges against me. Let me respond to the charges against me. He's just saying, ease my pain enough so that we can talk. Now, Job goes in and he wants to know, like, be specific about the charges against me. Because, again, in his mind, he can't come up with anything. His friends have all kinds of guesses. But he wants to know what God says, not what his friends are saying. So verse 23, how many are my guilty deeds and sins? So how many charges do you have against me? Verse 24, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? What have I done to make this situation happen? Verse 26, are you charging me with the sins of my youth? Now, Job knows as a child, he wasn't always blameless and upright. As a youth, maybe he was kind of a wild child. But he's saying here, is that why this is happening? Because the only thing I can think of is, is I wasn't so upright as a kid. Is that why this is happening? But again, he just wants to know. Chapter 14, verse 1. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Basically just saying man was born for trouble. Sin is a part of our life. And he's not wrong here. But he's kind of saying like, you're blaming me for just being who I am. But then Job asks a question. He thinks he knows the answer to this question. He's really wrong in this. But he thinks he knows and he's pretty assured of this 
And he answers his own question. Job 14, verse 4, who can make the clean out of the unclean? And his answer, his rhetorical answer, no one. No one. He has no idea that the unclean can be clean through Christ. But this is a long time before he even has a concept of that. He goes on to say, verses 7 through 9, he draws this picture of a tree. He's saying even a tree has more hope than a human being has because if you cut a tree off at the base and there's the slightest bit of water, that tree can sprout up again. We see it all the time. But man, once man is done, man is done. Chapter 14, verse 10, but a man dies and lies prostrate. A person passes away, and where is he? Now that question, he knows. In his mind, at that time, all they had, they didn't have heaven, they didn't have hell, they just had this place called Sheol. And Sheol was just this dark place where all the dead went. The good, the bad, the in-between, everybody went to Sheol. Chapter 14, verses 12 and 13 says, So a man lies down and does not rise until the heavens no longer exist. He will not awake nor be woken from his sleep. Okay, there was no resurrection or escape from Sheol. Then he goes on and say, Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you, that you would set a limit for me and remember me. He's telling God, Why don't you just hide me away in this dark place? Hide me away in Sheol until you calm down a little bit. It's basically what he's saying. He's saying. I don't know why you are so worked up and so angry at me, but why don't you just go ahead and put me in that dark place and leave me there until you come to your senses. The idea of resurrection, again, escape from Sheol, was just not something that they had this concept of, but in true Job fashion, he says these things, inspired by, inspired by conversations with the with God, a revelation from the Spirit. We don't know how, but he says these things that are so insightful. Chapter 14, verse 14 says, If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle I will wait until my relief comes. Okay, it seems kind of innocuous there, but let's look at this closer. That word relief, most translations are a little bit different on how they translate that word, but in Hebrew, that word relief is khalifa. And khalifa means literally a change. Or some translations use that as a renewal. So he's talking about, I'll be there until I am renewed or until there's a change. It's a concept that they would not have had in that time. Again, 4,000 years ago. That's a long time. And, and he's got ideas that wouldn't be known for far later. Now, moving on, Job has stated his case. He resigns himself to death. He's basically just saying, hey, I know I'm innocent, but if you have something against me, I'm okay with that, whatever you think is best. He understands the sovereignty of God, but he's saying, stamp me guilty and throw me away. Just lock me away. If I'm, if I'm vindicated, I won't live to see it, and it really doesn't matter to me. His closing comment, the last thing that he says in this section of Scripture it's not one of defiance. It's just one of sadness. It's just sad. Verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 22. However, his body pains him and his soul mourns for himself. He's in this place where he thinks he's failed in his argument or, or simply just failed to make an argument at all. And in part, that's due to the fact 
but he doesn't know what the charges are. How can you argue a charge that you don't know? Now, without looking at the person next to you or anybody in particular, have you ever had an argument, okay, where you say, what did I do? And the answer is, you know what you did. That is the worst thing you can possibly hear because if you knew, you wouldn't ask that question. Job is basically hearing from God, you know what you did. Only God's not saying that. His friends are saying that, and he's filling in the blanks. So he's just confused. <clears throat> so that's it for this scripture. Three chapters right there. But I want to conclude this section, and I want to make an application to what we go through every day. This has been a week, a month, a year of nothing but turmoil, nothing of confusing times. What can I trust in? What makes sense? The things that we thought made sense no longer do. And it doesn't matter what side of any debate that you're on. Nothing seems to make sense. So how do we apply a, a few sections like this? How do we apply that? And here's what, here's what God showed me. I was up writing this message until... It's about a quarter after midnight on Friday night. And God just kept showing me things that, that just burdened my heart that I had to find a way to apply that towards this message. And I think God gave me some, some cool revelation. This is what I want to share with you. First of all, the passion or the volume or the certainty at which somebody speaks something has nothing to do with its accuracy the size of your platform, the number of Twitter followers, the number of, of Instagram followers, the, the more passionate you speak something has nothing to do with the truth contained in. And so many people get confused with that. They have a lot of followers. They're speaking it very passionately. That must be true. We don't look past that. That's where Job's friends are. They're adamant. They're coming at him forcefully, and they are absolutely convinced that what they're saying is true. They're adamant, they're aggressive, but they're also wrong. Job was able to stand against them only because he was absolutely certain of his innocence. He had given the enemy no cause for blame. And he knew that the devil didn't have anything against him. And so what he saw didn't look like the logical result of a life that he had lived, but he knew that he was innocent and he was able to trust God through all of that. So our, what we can learn is this. When you can't understand what you see in front of you, you can't understand the outcome, trust that God's ways are always righteous. Always there's nothing that has happened in the history of mankind, including today or last week or last month, that God isn't aware of. He's aware of all those things, and not only that, but his sovereign hand was over all of it. So he either caused it, or he allowed it to happen, or he used it for our good, or all three. This is not reason for us to fear not reason for us to give the enemy more credit than he deserves. So when you can't understand what you see in front of you, trust that his ways are always righteous. And if you can't understand his ways, trust his heart. If you can't understand why he would do what he would do, 
trust his heart. And if he can't trust his heart, trust his track record. This is why we do testimonies. This is why we study Old Testament scripture and prophecy and these things. This helps us to understand God has a track record of coming through on his promises. God has a track record, 100%, by the way, of fulfilling the things that he has promised to us over and over. And we study scripture, we give testimonies, we do all these things to help us understand that God is and has always been faithful. That's why we study. And if you can't trust in, your, in his record, ask yourself why you think it wouldn't apply to you. I talk to people all the time who say, I get that. I get that, pro- that God promises this. He promises he'll deliver us from this. He promises good and not evil. He promises, but that's for all these other people who are way more holy and righteous than me. It doesn't apply to me. If you think those things don't apply to you, ask yourself why. And I would say that's probably because there is something you're hiding in your heart, some sin in your heart that you think is not causing a problem, and yet it's something that the devil can hold against you. It's an accusation that he can have against you that makes you doubt then that the promises of God are for you. Find that thing. Whatever that thing is that you think is causing those promises to not be valid for you, and repent of that. Simply turn away from that. That's what it takes. We need to be able to look at the world around us and say, there is no reason. I say this, between Gabe and I, we say this all the time. God has always been good to us, and there is no reason to think he would stop that now. And it doesn't matter what we're going through or what we're facing because we know. And we can say that with certainty. So stop trying to make sense of the chaos and just simply persevere through the storm. That's what we're called to do. Persevere through the storm and not lose the ability to reflect Christ in you. Because ultimately, that's what it's about. Ultimately, it's about that. Paul said this. We're on the home stretch here. Bear with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul said this, but we all with unveiled faces looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. Okay, so he's saying we are being transformed. We ought to be able to look in a mirror or the reflection that someone else sees in us and know that we are being transformed into reflecting the glory of the Lord. But unfortunately, this that's true. This proverb is also true. Proverbs 27, 19. As in water, a face reflects the face, so the heart of a person reflects the person. So water might reflect your face. What's in your heart reflects who you are. And what do you reflect? That's the question I think we need to look at this. Job's friends are certainly not reflecting God in them or the holiness or righteousness of of anything, what they're simply doing is reflecting the wisdom of the world that they have learned. What do you want to reflect? Our calling on this earth as followers of Christ is first and foremost to help others understand the salvation offered by Jesus. That is first and foremost our calling. And Jesus did that work on the cross. We need to call attention to that, and we don't do that 
by shouting our outrage over politics. We don't do that by shouting our outrage over cultural issues. We don't do that if we shout those things louder than we shout our love for Jesus. Let me repeat that. It's okay to be outraged about the things you see around the world. If, if something touches your heart that this is, this is an outrageous thing, it's okay to be upset about those things, but not to the point that we are shouting those things of the world, cursing the storms of the world more than we shout our love for Jesus. That ought to be what people hear from us first and foremost. We don't do that by engaging with the things of this world with more energy and passion that we use to declare Christ as Lord. And we certainly don't do that by failing to keep our careless words in check. Like it or not, church out there online, everywhere. Now, we have Republicans, Democrats, independents, maybe some socialists. We have everybody on the political spectrum going to this church. We are a community church. We have everybody all over the spectrum here. But typically, Christians are, are, especially evangelical Christians, are identified with political conservatives, typically. If you ask, that would be just the general blanket statement that they would make. And what I've seen from this last week and in the last few months has been a lightning rod for division. And that's associated with followers of Christ, and that hurts my heart that followers of Christ would be that. If you saw any of the footage from the, from the U.S. Capitol and all the things that happened in the last several days, you see people marching under all kinds of banners. You fill in the blanks. There are banners all over the place. I watched coverage probably like you way more than I should have, and I only saw one banner that I would march under, and it said Jesus on it, just one word. It just said Jesus. And in the midst of that storm of all these other hateful banners and all this other thing, that like it or not might be an image of hate that somebody would see, that one that just said Jesus stood out to me. I said, I would march under that banner. I posted a meme this week on on my page. Here I'm talking about posting clever memes. But I did that, and and this, this is a picture of it. Be the reason someone loves Jesus, not the reason they hate Christians. That's how I want to live my life. It's not our rhetoric, our passion that will draw others to want to know why we're the calm in the storm. It's our calm. Like Jesus in the boat, be different than the storm around you. And the worse the storm gets, the better chance we have to stand out because we are not engaging in the storms of this world. I want to read you. I have three scriptures left. Trust me, I'm on on the home stretch. I want to read you a scripture from Timothy. Let me know if you think that he's talking about today. Listen to this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Just listen to this. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such people as these. I would add better yet, don't be such people as these. 
Timothy's prescription, talking about prescriptions to this situation, is found just a couple verses down, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. That's why we study. And when you're when you're calm in the midst of the storms of this world, cause people to take notice and ask you, how can you be so calm? How can you just preach peace and unity in the midst of all this storm? We need to be prepared. How can we do that? It's not just that I'm choosing to put blinders on and ignore the world. We're never called to just put blinders on and ignore the world. But where's your focus? 1 Peter 3 15 and 16 says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, but with gentleness and respect. How many of you heard that scripture, but we don't add the but with gentleness and respect? That's in there. Verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that the thing in which you are slandered those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. I want to remember that. With gentleness and respect. State your case. Have your peace with gentleness and respect, but keep your conscience pure, meaning stay blameless before God. Don't give the enemy something to slander you with because he will. And those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Let him do the fighting for you. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you that from thousands of years ago, you knew what was going to happen to us today. You knew the things that were going to weigh on our hearts today, and you knew the things that we were going to struggle with to reconcile in our minds. And so, Father, you sent your word for us to show us, to give us a map on how to live our lives. And so, Lord, If I proclaim something loudly and with passion, let it be the righteousness of Christ. Let it be the love of Christ for those around me. Whether I agree with them or not, Christ loves them. Help me to see that. Help me to see people on either side of myself, all over the spectrum, all over the world. Help me to see them the way you see them. And even more than that, Lord, help me to be the calm in the storm that people will look to so that I can declare forcefully and loudly and with passion the reason I have hope is because of Jesus. And it's found in nowhere else. So, Father, we love you and we praise you, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to take communion. If you grabbed a cup off the table in the back, then grab that. If you didn't, raise your hand up and they'll come around and they'll give you the elements. But we're going to take communion together. If you're at home, grab your elements, whatever you have. Taking communion has nothing to do with being member, a member of a particular church or anything. If you call Jesus your Lord and Savior, we are called to take communion together. So whether it's your first time here or whether you've been here a long time, I urge you to take that with us. And communion, really, there's all kinds of scriptures, all kinds of things that we can say about what it means. 
But really what it means by partaking in the body and the blood of Christ, it means I accept what Jesus did for me. I align myself with the things that he teaches. And I will do my best. Doesn't mean any of us are going to be perfect. It means I will try to live my life by what he teaches. But it starts with the acceptance of a body broken and given for you. Take the body. The blood of Christ. I talked about the spiritual windshield. We are so covered with the gunk and the grime of the sin that we have collected throughout our lives, if not just what we've collected today. And it colors our ability to see God, to hear from Him in the way that we should. It, it, it hurts our relationship with Him, our closeness to Him, more so because we see ourselves through that veil of sin. But the blood of Christ, that is what Father God sees us through. This blood that was shed for us to cover our sins once and for all, to reconcile us to God so we don't have to see him and he doesn't see us through the veil of the sin in our lives. Take the blood. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your son Jesus and that you are sovereign and that you are in control and it is in that that our hope lies. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.